We're in the book of Mark, starting in chapter 2, verse 13. And Mark picks up in the story of Jesus and his movements around Galilee when he says this, He, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he, that is Jesus, reclined at the table in his, that is Levi's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In December of 1996, Colonel Taylor was working on a paving crew repairing a bridge in, on Interstate 64 in Virginia. The road was icy on the bridge, and a pickup truck slid out of control and actually hit Taylor, knocking him off the bridge. He fell 70 feet into the cold Elizabeth River. His pelvis and his facial bones were broken, and nearby, while all this was going on, Joseph Brisson, the captain of a barge, passing by at that moment, saw Taylor fall into the water. He knew Taylor would drown, and he would drown in the numbing currents of the Elizabeth River. And so before his crew could launch a boat to reach Taylor, Brisson decided to risk his life for a man he'd never met. He dove into the river, swam to Taylor, and grabbed the man with his arms. Brisson held Taylor's head above the water and found a nearby piece of wood to put under Taylor so he could keep afloat. The current was very strong, and they began to separate. So Brisson swam over to uh, Taylor, wrapped his legs around Taylor, and held on as tight as he could in the current. After almost 30 minutes in the river, Brisson's crew from the local barge managed to reach the two men and pull them to safety. Taylor was hospitalized for broken bones, and Brisson, the hero who had jumped in after him, was hospitalized for mild hypothermia. Later on, Brisson told the Associated Press he knew, he knew what it had, he had to do when he saw the man fall in the water. And he said, I quote, I thought about how life is very important. I'm a Christian man, and I couldn't let anything happen to him. How life is very important. And as Christians, we can't let anything happen to them. Well, today, guys, in our sermon, 
series, we're going to talk about risking our lives by jumping into the water after unbelievers, or as we say, walking into their world. I'm not going to pretend that as we talk about this today, that this will not be challenging for all of us. I am hopeful, though, that Jesus will call us to renewed life of mission and bringing, being a part of bringing people to their greater purpose of worshiping Christ and following Him. Indeed, Christ is the starting point of our very sermon series today in Mark 2, where we're asked the question, how did Jesus carry out His mission to the lost? How did Jesus reach out to the broken with His greater purpose of redeeming the lost and broken among Him? And what was His way that we are called to follow in co-mission with Him? That's our question for today. Now, the book of Mark gets to the point of, of this question very quickly. I mean, we're just into chapter 2 of, book of, of the book of Mark, and already Jesus has done all kinds of things. He's healed people. He's preached. He has gathered disciples. He's done a host of amazing things. He is on the move in the book of Mark. In fact, we find him on the move even in surprising places in our leading verse today, in verse 13. Listen to what he said, what, what the Bible says here. He, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. One of the things you'll see about Mark, if you were to read back a few chapters, is Mark regularly has Jesus going and coming, going and coming. He went, he came, he went. That's the language of Mark all over the place. And this time he leaves the Galilean town of Capernaum where he'd been hanging out with some people and he goes to the beaches of Capernaum by the sea. And why was he going out? Why does he keep going out and coming back and going out and coming back? Because he was on a mission. He was on a mission. He was on a mission to the people, the lost people in his midst. We know from the Gospel of John that Jesus was sent by the Father to carry out a mission. His purpose to bring glory to God the Father through the salvation of men through His great work on the cross. Jesus' very name means God saves. But notice how He does it. He goes out. He keeps going out. Sure, he goes to church or the synagogue in that time. But in Mark, he keeps going into people's houses. He goes outdoors and preaches. He keeps going out to places you wouldn't expect a holy man to go to. What this proves off the bat is that God is a missionary. God is the ultimate missionary. Going out to reach people where they are in the dark places they live. He is always going out. How does this affect us? Well, right off the bat, it affects us in the way we do church, especially here in the Bible Belt. We do church in what we'll call the come-to model. The come-to model is like this. We'll do church, you all come to us. That's different from the missional go-to model that Jesus himself practiced. 
And here is where we need to stop and know ourselves, like we talked about last week. As believers, we build Christian community, which is good. We build our Christian network of friends and build that network more and more, which is also good. We spend our time with fellow Christians, which is still good. We even educate our kids in the church, in our homes, in Christian schools, in other environments that are very Christian environments, which is very good. However, putting all this together with our very busy lives, you know what we actually do? We nudge non-Christians out of our lives and our spheres of influence. We have little or no impact on the lost. We get stuck on Jesus and me. We even start to fall in love with the church, amen, with Jesus and us. But sometimes we forget about Jesus' grander vision of mission, Jesus and them. That's what Christ was about. And his very different way of doing church and life is he was intentionally going out among people who did not know him. He makes time for them because he sees the value of a lost person, much like Captain Brisson saw the life and the value of a life in Carnell Taylor. In other words, Jesus intentionally walks into the world of people who don't know him. And why is that? Well, he's this missionary God. And that begs the question about us. What are we doing relative to the mission of God? What are the names of lost people in your life that don't know Jesus? Do you pray for them at the very least? Do you even intentionally spend time with them to be a verbal and even presence of of influence for Christ? Let me put it this way, to be holy and to walk in Jesus's footsteps means resisting the come to model of let's do church and hey, all you all people on the outside come in. Nah, it's the go to model where we live among the lost in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, our families, our schools, every environment you are in, every sphere of influence. That's what Jesus calls us to do. Now, if someone here today doesn't know Christ, I know that feeling. I've been where you sit before when I was a 15-year-old kid. If you're wondering now, if God is this missionary God and really cares for the lost, could he care for me? Would he care for me? Would he even move towards me? I would encourage you with this gospel news. God is moving towards you. Long before you even think about him, he moves towards you. He is a missional Lord who is interested deeply in loving you and loving you even to the cross. Now, what's the effect of going that Jesus has? Well, in our text, it says he goes out and people are drawn to him. And he even teaches them. And I might add, the crowds, even waves of crowds came to see Jesus. Even at this point in his ministry, he was becoming very popular 
I mean, his exit polls were extraordinary. Crowds were coming. And there's an important point. If you invest your life in non-Christians in meaningful ways, they will be drawn to you. They will be drawn to you. But sometimes the people that are drawn to us, as I found in my walk with Jesus, (laughs) even reaching out to people, is that the Lord will draw very interesting and unexpected people our way. Look at verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. This verse gets at the who, even the controversial who, of who often is drawn to Christ and impacted with the gospel. And it's a very surprising who. (laughs) My, is it quite the who? The guy's name was Levi, and he was a tax collector. Now, you all also know him by his better-known name, Matthew. That's right, the guy who wrote the first gospel before this very book. That's him in this text. And the amazing thing about this is, while we would admire Matthew for writing one of the gospels as Christians, we often forget where he came from. He was a tax collector. Now, we all are a little uncomfortable with tax collectors and the IRS these days. It is, after all, tax time. But the tax collectors in Jesus' day were far more scandalous and offensive people. First, you need to understand about tax collectors in Jesus' time. Among the Jews, they were considered traitors. They were employed by the Herod kings to collect taxes for the dirty, rotten Romans. Remember, the Romans were not welcome visitors in Galilee and in Judea in Jesus' time. They were an occupying force who came in and took over, much like we'll say the British were trying to retake the the states, or, or rather the colonies prior or during the revolution. They were not welcome. Second thing you would need to know is that tax collectors were invasive. Notice Matthew is by the shore. Did you notice that in this text? He is by the shore. And you know why he's by the shore? He's collecting taxes on fish. That's right. In their time, fishermen like Peter, James, and John would come in, and this is probably how they knew Matthew, and they would pay taxes on the fish they caught. It'd be like you working hard all day long and wanting the fruits of your labor and your paycheck. And then as you walk out out of your job, there's a custom agent like you'd experience at the airport waiting right there saying, hey, before you go anywhere, show me the money. What have you got there? Okay, that's going to cost you. You could understand that that was offensive and invasive in many ways. But there's a third and even a far worse reason tax collectors were scandalous and hated. Tax collectors were liars and cheats in that time. They were supposed to collect X dollars of tax for the Romans. But they were notorious for adding a little bit more to the X that they could skim off for themselves as their own profits. Hence, 
They were usually rich. And everybody knew they were rich by cheating everybody else. As a result of all of this, they were considered a disgrace to their country. They were disqualified from serving as witness in court, witnesses in court because they're liars. You can't trust them. And here's the hardest part. You ready? They were all excommunicated from the synagogues. They were said, you can have nothing to do with God and the church. You are that much of a traitor. You see, tax collectors were a lot like the Taliban. The Taliban would be to us as Americans and even American Christians. So here's the crazy part. In light of this truth about who, how really offensive these guys were, Jesus talks to one, and not only does he talk to one, he invites him to follow. Ah! Wait a minute, that's out of control. What are you doing, Jesus? This goes to show that while you and I might discriminate on who we will love, even as Christians, Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't. He reaches out to the messiest, darkest, most broken people imaginable. In other words, when Jesus walks into a world, he walks willingly into the world of broken people. The most broken you can imagine. Jesus is that big in his love. Jesus is that great in his ability to overcome darkness. And this is the great news for us as Christians, and even for those of us who are exploring Christianity. I mean, if Jesus is big enough to walk into this guy's world in the ways he's cheated and lied and used people, what about you and me? He can overcome our darkest things that we bring to the table and maybe no one knows in this room. Jesus, you see, is a gatherer. He is a gatherer and invites people to be near him. Unexpected people, unpredictable people, surprising people. So we see here then, in this text, that the dignity of every broken and messy person is still seen by God in how he wants to redeem them. And that's true for us as well in how we do outreach. Christ reaches out to us in our brokenness and so calls us to reach out to others and engage them with the gospel, even people we wouldn't normally hang out with. Now, that's kind of radical stuff. Could you imagine hanging out with people who you are like normally uncomfortable with? You wouldn't want to be around? Well, guys, that's what missional living is all about. That's what missional living is all about. Let me clarify. I am not saying that in order to hang out with lost men who are, for example, homosexuals, we go into a gay bar. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we are willing to even move towards them with an uncompromising commitment to Christ and yet an uncompromising love of Christ 
to invest ourselves in the lost of this world. If you're offended by someone and how they do life around you, maybe Jesus wants you to lean in. Maybe Jesus is calling you to learn a bigger love than what you're normally used to and feels very comfortable in our Christian settings. After all, Jesus called others to follow, to follow his way. He called Levi. And just to be clear, when he called Levi, it says he left. What does it say here in verse 14? He rose and followed him. The, the, the Lucan version of this in the book of Luke actually says he left everything, rose and followed him. In other words, when Jesus calls somebody to follow, he calls them to repent, to give up something. Sin, of course, and sometimes good things for him to make him the first thing in our lives. But don't miss the point of outreach for us, even in the call to follow. Jesus not only says, come and follow me to the lost, but he says it to believers. He says it to you believers like you and me on a regular basis. We're to follow him in mission, making disciples. Every time we're called to follow Jesus into mission, we are called to give something up. That's right. Maybe it's something like our comfort. Maybe the desire to be liked by everyone, to be popular. When Jesus calls us to follow, he calls us to give up comforts like the Christian ghetto. The Christian ghetto being where we hang out with Christians. We do all Christian things with all Christian people, listen to our Christian music, read our Christian books, and insulate ourselves from the rest of the world. By the way, that's what Israel did in the Old Testament and was even doing in Jesus' time in the New Testament with the Pharisees, and it didn't go well for them. You and I are called to give up some things even big things to reach out in missional living to lost people. And you want me to tell you the biggest one that I personally am convicted of, even as I've prayed this week? Here it is. You ready? Time. Time. Time spent building relationships with unbelievers in order to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. In short... We are never going to call people to follow Christ until we're willing to do it ourselves in mission. That's what we're called to do. Now, here's the question. What might that look like? What might that look like in our time, in our place? Well, verse 15 tells us in our text uh, what Jesus did. It's pretty radical stuff. Look at verse 15. As he, that is Jesus, reclined at a table in his, that is Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, that is, of tax collectors who followed Jesus. So Jesus went out, he passed by, invited um, Levi to follow, and he talks to this scandalous person in public. You can imagine, everybody's watching. But now he's gone off the deep end. Jesus is losing his marbles. The Son of God, the perfect sinless Son of God, who came down from heaven, is partying with Levi and all his friends. 
What is up? You've got to be kidding me. Not only is he talking with Levi, he's doing life with him now. And he's doing it not only with Levi, but with his lying, conniving friends. What is happening in this text? Well, first, you've got to understand, this is Jesus doing what we call, in Christian circles, incarnational ministry. Incarnational ministry is basically this. It's when uh, we walk into someone's world and go where they live and do life with them. And we get incarnation from what Jesus did, who left the perfections and glories of heaven at the right hand of God the Father and who came down into our world as a man and dwelled among us in our broken world. He did it not only with us and mankind 2,000 years ago in history, he does it with you and me through the power of the Spirit here and now. That's incarnational ministry. But there's a second thing Jesus is doing here. And it's a principle that if you reach one lost person for Jesus, like Levi, you actually reach into a network and may influence a network of people for Christ. I want to tell you guys something. Years ago, I grew up in a non-Christian home. And I did not know Christ. I didn't even go to church growing up as a kid. In the South, in Charlotte, this most churched town of all. And I thought Christians were a bunch of hypocrites. (laughs) And I have to tell them after being a Christian for 32 years, yep, we are hypocrites. We're struggling. But so are you, non-Christian. A church in Charlotte reached out and invested their lives in me, the pastor and others, and I became a believer. My parents became believers. And the echoes of that have gone throughout our family, our friends, our entire lives. It's changed us as a family. It's changed other people as a result. When you reach one for Christ, you're actually reaching an entire family sometimes. You'll reach a community. Yes, you'll even change a guild of a profession like tax collecting. Imagine the massive change that went on among tax collectors as a result of so many coming to know Christ. You can impact your jobs with the gospel. If you want reform in how you do your profession, reach people for Jesus. The effects were extraordinary. They were celebrated by the disciples who were there with Jesus. But there was a group who was having a hard time with this. Look quickly with me at verse 16. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the scribes and Pharisees were the religious elite of the time. And they had an elaborate system of laws to keep themselves pure. Why? Because the Old Testament Jews had messed up. God judged them, kicked them out of the land. And they didn't want the same thing to happen to them. So they were working out of fear. Let's create all these rules out of fear. And one of the rules was you don't associate with dirty people, morally dirty people, because 
hey, they might get you dirty. They believed in secondhand sin. You've heard of secondhand smoke. Secondhand smoke is when you're around somebody smoking, you know, the chimneys. You're afraid if I breathe in that smoke, it might affect me. Well, guess what? The Pharisees and their scribes believed in secondhand sin. If I get too close to it, it might cause me to have ill health, so stay away from it. The problem with them is they didn't see their own sin. (laughs) How dark they were and how far from God they were in their legalism. The scandal of Jesus being with these tax collectors and sinners was not lost on these these, um, Pharisees. It'd be like this. It'd be like Billy Graham eating in a public restaurant with the leading abortion advocates and activists and the leading homosexual champions in our culture. And you saw it. You can imagine their head was spinning watching Jesus, a holy man, a rabbi who's supposed to keep the law of God. What can we learn from this? We too must watch our attitudes toward the lost. Know yourself. Know yourself in Christ. And here's how I want you to know yourself. What is your moralistic tug? When you are around someone who really is sinful and they're doing offensive things, how do you respond? Anger? Ha! Contempt? Ugh! Well, let me tell you, it's okay to be angry. It's not okay to be contemptuous. The question is, where do you go next? Do you just settle for anger and give them the stiff arm, the Heisman? Or do you go to tears from your anger? Lament like Jesus did over a lost Jerusalem. Do you weep like the prodigal father wept over his son? That's how we engage the lost. We weep. And we love. One of the chief reasons that we are afraid to share our faith in our tug in dealing with non-Christians is we also are ashamed. In fact, I would suggest to you that shame is probably the chief emotion we feel when people like me, pastors like me, stand up and share the gospel and say, let's go share the gospel with others. We feel the acute sense of, I'm not enough. And can I give you great news? You ready? You aren't enough. It's not about you. You aren't the one they're converting to, not even Redeemer. They're converting to Christ, the eternal Savior who died on a cross for them and is alive and well at the right hand of the Father. He's resurrected from the dead. That's who we communicate. Stop thinking that you've got to pull this off that they have to somehow like you in order to receive the gospel, just tell them the good news with love. With love like Christ did. Lean in. Walk into their world. Even if it's a little scary for you, say, Jesus, I'm scared. I don't want to compromise. Good. Don't compromise. Walk anyway with a commitment not to compromise. This is radical stuff. Jesus is calling us 
to get out of our smug religiosity that we all struggle with. And I am the chief of sinners here, guys. And to actually take a risk with somebody who needs to hear about him because they are lost and they are dying in their lostness and their sin. We are called to understand our place as recovering sinners, saints who have been redeemed and whom Jesus is working on. And why do we do that? Well, look at the final gospel in verse 17. Jesus heard these Pharisees complaining about him hanging out with all these people. And this is what he said. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you realize what great news this is? Jesus doesn't come for together people. He comes for broken people like you and me. He doesn't come for Christians who all of a sudden get their act together and are trying to be perfect. He comes for Christians who are broken and aren't reaching out. He wants to forgive us. Is that like a thing from God or something? Uh, <laughs> Christ is calling us today to walk into their world. To leave our little insulated, comfortable worlds and take a risk with Jesus, follow him in his footsteps into sometimes radical places like tax collectors. Are you kidding me? And I can assure you, after years of following Jesus and being unbelievably uncomfortable sharing the gospel with some people as a pastor, Jesus will be there with you. For I am with you even to the end of the age. You are not alone. Final thoughts. How can we apply these truths and walk in the people's world together? Well, first, start knowing yourself. Know your own story. You know, when I fall off the wagon I say, and I'm not hanging out with non-Christians enough or even intentionally investing myself, you know what I do? I go and I remember where I came from. I came from a pretty dark family with pretty dark stuff. Alcohol, drugs, divorce everywhere. Jesus saved me and my family, my immediate family, out of that, even extended members in my family out of that. And when I think about that, I remember, yeah, if he can save me, he can save anybody. For Christians, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, and that seems like a long time ago, do this. What has Jesus saved you from recently? If you can't, articulate what Jesus saved you from recently, the last six to 12 months, as a sin or a dark part of who you are, you might be in the ghetto. And you might be living like a Pharisee because that's exactly the way they lived. Look at all those dirty, rotten people out there. But here I am, I tithe, and I give all that I want to you, Lord. Oh, aren't I sw swell and special? Nah, Reaching people for Christ is all about going as a recovering sinner. I need Jesus too, right now. Second, follow Jesus into their world by name. In your bulletin right now, there is a card. Pull it out right now. In your bulletin, you'll find a card. On that card, 
is a place for names. What I want you to do is fill that card out with names of unbelievers in your life. And here's the thing. If you're blanking right now and have no unbelievers that you can think of, the number one name you put on there is you. Start preaching the gospel to yourself of your need to see how dark and lost you'd be without Jesus so you can go and tell others what Christ has done for you. In conclusion, I'm sure many of you right now are thinking, whoa, this is big stuff. (laughs) And I'm sure some of you are thinking, man, you want me to share the gospel. I'm no Billy Graham. I I can't be powerful and make a difference like he did. I can't do that. Ah, not a good excuse. Here's why. In 1974, during the International Congress of World Evangelization in Lausanne, Switzerland, someone asked Billy Graham in front of a huge crowd of Christian leaders, Christians from all over the world, who will be the next Billy Graham? Graham paused, and he thought, and he motioned to the huge crowd. And you know what he said? They will. Folks, no one here will ever replace Billy Graham because they're not supposed to. If we walk into somebody's world, every one of us, and reach one for Christ in God's time and place, it'll change Union County, it'll change the world, it'll change you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you call us to this mission that is way too big for us but is not too big for you. We want to live this kind of life. It is hard, Lord. It is very difficult. We pray today that you would take our hearts and you would turn us, Lord, to the lost who are around us, not just to get angry with the sin we see in our culture and in our families and among our friends, some of the dark things that are done, but to to be moved to tears, Lord, to the lostness, to be moved to tears that they might know. That has to come from your Spirit. Blow here, Holy Spirit. Change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of us who have responded to the fact that we are sick and we needed a healer, uh, let's rise and, and praise our Lord.